Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. We'll read first from Genesis 6, 9-22, and also Luke 17, 20-27. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Luke chapter 17 verse 20 now. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So far the reading of God's holy word. Our prayer is that the Lord would now bless the preaching of it and our application of it to our lives today. We've come now to the very famous story of Noah and the ark. Uh, The story is probably familiar to you. If you were brought up in a Christian home, it is likely that you were exposed to this story at a young age. I'm I'm sure you could even now picture the illustration of it as it is typically portrayed in a children's story Bible. There you see cartoon Noah, along with the ark that he built and a line of animals parading into it. Two by two they came. I'm not complaining. 
about children's story Bibles. I think it is good and fine to expose our children to biblical narratives at a young age and in a way that's appropriate to their capacity. But, but there does come a time when we need to progress beyond a childish understanding of things to maturity. Uh, today we're going to begin to carefully consider the story of the flood of Noah and his ark and the covenant which God made with him. I want to say just three things by way of introduction uh, one, the flood narrative of Genesis 6-9 through 9-17 is a very important part of the overarching story of redemption that is found in Scripture. Uh, the, the flood, Noah's deliverance from it, and the covenant made with Noah have very much to do with our salvation in Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that many view this story as if it only has to do with the preservation of Noah, his family, and through them of mankind and of the animal kingdom. It does have to do with those things, no doubt. It is about that. But this story is also about Christ and the salvation that is found in Him. And so I am saying by way of introduction, friends, Christ is at the heart of this story, as we will see. Uh, two, it is our view that the flood and Noah's deliverance from it actually happened. I'm afraid that many view this story as if it were only a fable. Uh, notice that Moses presents the story of Noah and the ark as if it were true history. Notice also that the rest of Scripture treats the flood narrative as if it were true history. Just a moment ago I read uh, from the Gospel of Luke and we heard Jesus' words there concerning uh, the flood. And you would do well to notice that Jesus himself spoke of the flood as if it were real history. In fact, Jesus taught that before He returns to judge the world and to consummate His kingdom, the world will be as it was in the days of Noah. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus is saying that is how things will be in the days prior to My second coming and uh, the final judgment. Jesus viewed the flood narrative as if it were real history, and so should we. I think it is also interesting to observe that stories of a great flood are known from cultures all around the world. Uh, this also supports the historicity of the biblical narrative, I think. I'm not going to linger here for very long, uh, for it is somewhat outside the scope of this sermon but it is fascinating to compare the biblical account of the flood with other ancient flood narratives. In particular, it is beneficial to compare the biblical story with the Mesopotamian story as told in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Perhaps you have heard of this ancient story. And if you were to set the two stories side by side, you would notice many similarities and also many differences. Uh, the question is, how do we interpret the similarities and the differences between the biblical narrative and the, the stories of the flood that we find in other cultures? Well, uh, to state things rather briefly, it is my opinion that the similarities are the result of the historical event itself. Why do these cultures have flood narratives and why are the stories similar? It's because there actually was a flood, and someone was actually preserved through the flood along with his family in the animal kingdom. There was a real historical event that took place. Therefore, we see uh, stories pointing back to that historical event peppered throughout the cultures of the world. And so, there we have the similarities. Uh, why are there differences, though? And the differences, by the way, are very great. Uh, the differences are the result of the pagan distortion of the true story. 
Our belief is that the story that we have in the Bible was preserved in the righteous line of Noah and of Ham and of Abraham, as we will see. And so what we have in the pages of Holy Scripture is truth uh, concerning the God of heaven and His sending of the floodwaters upon the earth and Noah's preservation through the flood in the ark that God commanded him to make. Uh, The differences that exist between the biblical narrative and the pagan narratives uh, have to do with their distortion of the truth. Uh, The flood story of the Bible is true history, we believe. Uh, Three, though it be true that the story of Noah and the ark has very much to do with Jesus Christ and our salvation in Him, it also has to do with God's judgment. And I think here is the aspect of the story that we tend to downplay when we tell it to our children. It really is a wonderful story in some respects, a happy story. In fact, people were saved. Animals were saved. And those animals are very adorable animals, aren't they? Especially as you consider them parading into the ark. Uh, We emphasize all of that. But the, the, the other truth is that God sent the floodwaters to cover the earth so as to judge the wicked. Uh, many perished in the flood. The watery judgment foreshadows the fiery judgment that will come upon the earth at the end of time when Christ returns to make all things new. And so as we consider Noah and his ark, we see Christ pictured there and our salvation typified there. But as we consider the, 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 the flood waters of judgment, we see also foreshadowed and typified the final judgment when Christ returns to make all things new. Let us now consider this text in three parts. In verses 9 and 10, we find transitional material. And it's here in these two verses that Noah is introduced to us. In verse 9 we read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, The words, these are the generations of, uh, tell us that we have come now to a new section in the book of Genesis. Uh, This is the beginning of the third of the ten major sections of the book of Genesis. In 2.4, remember we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In 5.1, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And here in 6.9 we read, these are the generations of Noah. We will encounter seven more sayings like this one. These are the generations of so-and-so. They mark off the beginning of the ten major sections of the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 6.9 through to 10.1 tells us of the life of Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Notice, therefore, that this section of Genesis is very focused. It hones in upon the life of one man, really, and speaks to one event, that is the event of the flood and the covenant made with Noah concerning his deliverance. This is very different from the genealogy of Adam, isn't it, that we have just considered. For there in Adam's genealogy, many people were mentioned, and a great span of human history was covered. We should understand, therefore, that Noah was a very important figure. And the events narrated to us here in this passage are of great significance because things are very focused here in this section of the book of Genesis. We are going to consider the life of Noah and the flood. Here in verse 9, we learn that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. This does not mean that Noah was perfect. No one is without sin. 
Noah was no exception. This will become very clear later in the book of Genesis when we hear of Noah's drunkenness after the flood water subsided. Do you remember that story? Uh, Noah was not a perfect man, but nevertheless, the scriptures do say that Noah was a righteous man, so much so that he was blameless in his generation. What does that mean then? First of all, it means that Noah was clothed in the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. Noah was clothed in the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. Hebrews 11.7 makes this very clear when it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah received a righteousness that belonged not to him, but to another. He was an heir of it. He was clothed with an alien righteousness. He inherited his righteousness from another, namely from Christ. And this he received by faith. So when we hear that Noah was a righteous man, we must confess that he was clothed with the righteousness of Christ, received by faith in the promises of God. Secondly, it means that Noah did live a holy life. He stood out as distinct in the world. While everyone around him lived for their own pleasure and in sin, Noah lived a holy life. So holy was Noah that he is called blameless here. Noah made a practice of keeping God's law. Uh, the, the, the result of Noah's righteousness and blamelessness is found in, in this statement, Noah walked with God. Do you see that there in the text? Noah walked with God. Noah, therefore, was like Enoch who lived before him. Enoch walked with God, we were told. Noah and Enoch were known for having a particularly close relationship with God. These were righteous men. These were godly men. These were holy men. Were they perfect? No, they were not. But they were righteous and godly and holy. And I think it is important for us, of course, to emphasize that Noah was not a perfect human being. And, and, and while it is important to point out that Noah was right with God only because he was clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is received by faith alone, this we have already done, these things must also be emphasized. Noah was righteous. He was godly. And we too are to pursue a righteousness, a godliness in our own life. We're to pursue holiness, you see, uh, in our life, so that it might be said of us that we walked with God, so that we were distinct and different in our generation. Yes, we are clothed by the righteousness of Christ and stand forgiven before God and right with Him only because of what Christ has done for us, and all of that is received by faith. But should it not also be said of us that we are indeed godly individuals, holy individuals who are pursuing a holy life with all that was all that is in us. And, and Noah, we are told, had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It, it um, must be emphasized uh, that Noah was a righteous man, and here he has, is blessed with three sons. These three sons will become uh, very significant uh, as the story develops. In fact, we will find that from one of them comes another righteous line, uh, the Jewish people will descend from one of them. Uh, the Gentile peoples will descend from another, and the Canaanites will descend from another who become enemies of God. But here we see that Noah was truly a righteous man, 
and through this righteous man, a righteous line will be preserved, leading ultimately to the coming of the Christ. Brothers and sisters, I do hope that you are trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. I hope that you have abandoned all hope in establishing a righteousness of your own before God and are clothed instead by the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. There there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no righteousness before God outside of union with Christ. This must be said. But with that said, I hope that you are also pursuing a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. And so, friends, I I do implore you, having been made holy by the blood of Christ, received by faith alone, now live holy. Having been made righteous by the righteousness of Christ, imputed to you, received by by faith alone, now now live right before God. And, And oh, that it might be said of you and me that we walked with God, that we were righteous and blameless in our generation. I must implore you in this way, brothers and sisters, I am afraid that we far too often grow content and complacent, having been forgiven all of our sins through faith in Christ Jesus, so that we put up with sin in our lives. It should not be this way, brothers and sisters, but we should truly pursue holiness in every aspect of our lives. This is our calling in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter exhorted Christians in this way, saying, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there he emphasizes God's grace in Christ Jesus. But then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is 1 Peter 1, 13-16. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians, saying, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That is Romans 6, 12-13. And, and then the Apostle John commands us with these words, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the scriptures everywhere do emphasize our salvation through faith in Christ alone and our being made right before God through faith in Christ alone. But the scriptures also emphasize this, if you are in Christ, then live holy. Pursue holiness with all that is in you. Friends, we must take our sanctification in Christ Jesus seriously. Our confession of faith uh, describes the process of our sanctification, that process whereby we are made more and more like Christ, whereby we die more and more to self and live to God, as a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. 
I love that description of our sanctification. It is a continual and irreconcilable war. It is a war that will never end until Christ returns and makes all things new. And so I ask you the question, are you fighting this war? Are you fighting this war? Are you daily dressing for battle? Are you taking up your shield and your sword to fight? Or have you laid them down? Have you given up? I must warn you that the enemy will not hold back, friends. In the moment that you lay down your sword and put down your shield, you will simply be overrun. If you cease from fighting this irreconcilable and continual war, you will simply be overrun by the enemy. And so, I urge you to fight. I say to you, pursue holiness in Christ Jesus. May we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, giving honor to God in all of our thoughts and words and deeds. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, we are told. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And with these words, the main characters in the flood narrative are are introduced to us. Now in verses 11 and 12, uh, we find a statement concerning the corruption of man that had filled the earth in Noah's day. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice the threefold repetition of the word corrupt. It stands out, doesn't it, even as I read it to you. Uh, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, The Hebrew verb translated as corrupt means to spoil, to ruin, to destroy, to pervert. The world, that is to say the people of the world, had ruined themselves by their perversion. In fact, they had ruined the earth by their perversion. They had distorted God's design by their rebellion against His revealed will. And God saw it all. God sees our perversion, friends. It is not hidden from His sight. It was not hidden from his sight in Noah's day, and it is not hidden from his sight even now. When we read the words, God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt, I think we are to be reminded of the repeated words of Genesis chapter 1, where after God created this realm or that realm, we read these words, and God saw, and then what came next? That it was good. And this repeated throughout Genesis 1, And at the end of day six of creation, we read these words, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1.31. But but here in Genesis 6.11, we now we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, we do not read the words, it was good, but rather, it was corrupt, it was ruined for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice the end result of the corruption of man was violence. This is what their corruption produced. It produced a violent world. The earth was filled with violence, we read at the end of verse 11. Corrupt and sinful societies will always devolve into a state of violence. This should not surprise us. Where there is covetousness and greed, where there is dishonesty, where there is theft, where there is adultery, there will also be 
widespread violence. Men will even murder one another as the corruption increases. Notice what I did there, except move backwards through the last of the Ten Commandments, you see. Uh, Things will devolve in societies where there is a perversion or corruption of God's way, resulting in violence. In Noah's day, the earth was, was thoroughly corrupt and filled with violence. Uh, in the line of Cain, remember, we witness the rise of injustice and violence. Do you remember that? Do you remember that man, Lamech, who took two wives? And then he began to boast to his wives about the fact that he killed a young man for merely wounding him. Eventually, we learn that tyrannical and oppressive rulers and kings came to power in the world. These so-called sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as many as they desired. And so here, these tyrants began to oppress those who were weaker than they. And now we learn that not only were the rulers corrupt, oppressive, and violent, but the whole world had grown corrupt oppressive, and violent. Friends, I, I hope that these words never fail to astonish you. They've already been read in this worship service. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What world did God love? What world did God provide a Savior for so that all who believe upon Him Perish not, but have life eternal. What world are we talking about here? What is the quality or character of it? It is this world. The world that is being described to us here in Genesis chapter 6. It was the world that once was prior to the days of the flood. But do we not live in the same sort of world now? The same kind of world. And this world is the world that God has provided a Savior for. Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is a world ruined by sin filled with all manner of corruption and even violence. God loved this world, and we should be astonished by the fact that He is very patient and gracious and kind indeed. I could only do so much in sermons. I I do pray that you reflect upon this text uh, later today on on this Lord's Day and in the coming week and for the rest of your life for that matter. But but do you see how, how, how sinful societies do tend to devolve? Study human history and and consider the the rise of tyrannical and oppressive rulers throughout human history. Do we not see this same thing repeat itself over and over and over again? Consider also our study of the book of Revelation, which we concluded some time ago. Did we not see this same cycle described to us in the book of Revelation? Uh, uh, Just this cycle of wickedness, increasing wickedness, leading and culminating ultimately in the second coming of Christ. So you have a sense of what the world was like prior to uh, the coming of the floodwaters of of judgment. In verses 13 through 22, uh, we encounter the first of four divine speeches found within this flood narrative. In this flood narrative, which stretches through to chapter 9, verse 17, uh, we will encounter four divine speeches, just speeches that come from God. And this is the first of them. The divine speech is introduced with the words, And God said to Noah. And I want you to think for just a moment about these words. God said to Noah. God spoke to Noah. God in His grace still related to and revealed Himself to to man. This is an astonishing thing. And what did God say to Noah? First, we find a statement regarding God's plans to judge. Verse 13. 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I think if we were reading this text in the original Hebrew, we would certainly notice that the Hebrew word which was translated corrupt three times in verses 11 and 12 appears again here in verse 13 where it is translated destroy, at least in the English Standard Version. It's lost in our English translations a bit, but it's the same Hebrew word. Three times it's translated corrupt in verses 11 and 12, but it appears again in verse 13 and is translated destroy. If we were to translate the Hebrew with the English word ruined, then the meaning would come through, I think. Verse 11, it would sound like this. Now the earth was ruined in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined, for all flesh had ruined their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will ruin them with the earth. Because man had ruined his way and ruined the earth, God determined to ruin them. That is the idea that needs to come through in this passage. Secondly, instructions for Noah regarding the construction of the ark are given. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Uh, Friends, this was a very large vessel that Noah was to construct. According to our measurements, the ark would have been 450 feet long by 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. That's a very large vessel. Uh, Notice also that the ark was made with three levels within it, a lower, a second, and third level. Now, a careful consideration of the ark and its construction reveals that the ark was a kind of microcosm of the cosmos which God made in the beginning. The earthly realm consists of three levels, the heavens, the earth, and the seas. The ark with its three decks, I believe, is a replica of the earthly realm which God made in the beginning. And like the earthly realms, the ark was to be filled with animal life, and also with vegetation, so that it might be a place suitable for human habitation. If you've been here for this whole sermon series, I hope you're hearing familiar language, language I've been using even from Genesis 1 onward. This is a little microcosm of the cosmos which God made in the beginning. Furthermore, the ark was a kind of miniature version of the tabernacle and temple that Israel would eventually build Uh, Notice carefully that in the scriptures there are only two structures that God commanded man to build, giving specific instructions and dimensions for the construction thereof. The ark, and later in the Pentateuch we'll see instructions given uh, to Moses from heaven concerning the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle consisted of three realms also, the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And this corresponds to the three realms of the ark. 
all of this ties together, I think, when we recognize that Eden, the ark, and the tabernacle share this in common. All three were designed by God to function as a sanctuary for man. All three were places where man would live in the presence of God, where his life would be preserved. I have rushed very quickly through these concepts, but I have grown convinced that this is true. That ark that Noah was to build was to function as a a miniature version of the cosmos, and also it was to correspond in some ways to the tabernacle that would eventually be built by Israel in order to communicate that this was a place where Noah would be protected, where he would enjoy communion with God, where his life would be preserved by God. Noah was commanded to build the ark and he was provided specific instructions concerning its design and construction so that it would be a place of sanctuary for Noah and his family. In that ark, Noah would find life. In that ark, Noah would live in God's presence. The ark was a vessel of salvation. And as such, as a vessel of salvation, that ark prefigured Christ who is the true temple of God, the true sanctuary, the one through whom we are saved, not from the waters of judgment, but from our sins. There's something incredible going on here in the early chapters of Genesis and in this flood narrative. Thirdly, we have a brutally direct and clear statement regarding the coming judgment. Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, God said. And so ponder for a moment the severity of God's judgment. Put yourself there. Imagine this world. A world ruined by sin is about to be ruined by God, by the judgment of God. How many people and animals perished in the flood? We don't know. The scriptures don't say. Certainly tens of thousands, I think. Maybe many, many more than this. This was a great judgment of God poured out, and we should not minimize it. And so I ask you, was God, did God do wrong when He judged the earth in this way? Did He do wrong when He judged the earth in this way? Consider how many perished. Consider all of the death and destruction that came upon the earth when God sent the floodwaters upon it. Did God do wrong when He judged the earth in this way? I'm afraid that many would have this sentiment. Yes, it was wrong. It was unjust for God to do this. But we would say certainly not. God was right to judge the wicked. And will God do wrong when at the end of time He judges the ungodly fully? And finally, if we are in Christ and if we are believers of God's Word and if we know the God of Holy Scripture, we would have to say certainly not. For all of His judgments are right and true. We love to talk about Jesus and the love of God in our culture, do we not? But the God of the Bible is also a God of justice. Not only has He provided a Savior for us, not only do we call Him Father if we are in Christ Jesus, but He is judge. We see it represented here. We see His his activities of judgment here in this text, and we'll see it again at the end of time. The flood was not the final judgment, though. For Noah, his family, and the animals were spared so that life would continue on planet Earth But this flood was a type of the judgment to come. Just as in the ark we find a picture of Christ, a vessel of salvation, so too in the flood waters we see a picture of the judgment that will come 
at the end of time. Fourthly, in this divine speech, we hear an explanation of God's purpose for having Noah build an ark. Noah, build a massive vessel. This takes great faith, does it not, for him to go ahead and do this. Build a massive vessel, but here I'll tell you why. Verse 18, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, he says, but... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing on the, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And so here with these words, God gives Noah insight into his plans and purposes and the rationale for him having construct this massive vessel. God's purpose for the construction of the ark was so that He might preserve the animals, Noah, his family, and also establish a covenant with him. This is the very first time that the word covenant is used in Scripture. But it's not the first covenant that was made. A covenant of works was made with Adam in the garden. Life was promised to him upon the keeping of that covenant, and death was threatened upon the breach of it. You remember all of this, I'm sure. Adam broke that covenant of works and entered into a state of death. He and all his posterity entered into a state of death. Now God promised to establish a covenant with Noah. Should he be faithful to build the ark and enter into it according to the command of God? I want you to think for a moment of the faith required of Noah to build such a massive structure, being prompted to build it by the Word of God alone. Think of it. There was nothing nothing that would have prompted Noah to build this massive vessel other than the Word of God alone. There was nothing that he saw, nothing that he heard other than God's Word, uh, nothing that he sensed that would have caused him to build uh, this massive structure. But it was only God's Word, God's revelation uh, to him. I want you to think for a moment about the faith that would have been required. He must have been ridiculed. It must have cost him a great deal to build such a massive structure, and yet he did it by faith in obedience to God's Word. He did it by faith in obedience to God's Word, and even contrary to what his natural eyes were telling him. And what was the covenant that God would establish with Noah? We call it now the Noahic Covenant. Uh, We know that it is a covenant of common grace, we say. Uh, Through this covenant, men and women are not saved from their sins. Noah was not saved from his sin by this covenant, and neither are we. No one has ever been saved by virtue of the Noahic covenant. But in this covenant, humanity was preserved and the full and final judgment of God was delayed so that God might bring about His redemptive purposes, the The specifics of this covenant will be communicated to Noah after the floodwaters subside. So if you would turn over very quickly to Genesis 9-8, it's there that we encounter the establishment of the covenant which God promised to Noah 
here in the passage that we are considering today. Noah, build this ark. I will establish my covenant with you. But it's here in Genesis 9-8 that we witness the actual establishment of this covenant. There we read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, we will consider that Noahic covenant much more carefully when we come to it as we progress through the book of Genesis. But for now, recognize that this covenant was made with everything, with all of the earth, with all flesh, and know for certain that no one has ever been saved from their sins by the promises of the Noahic covenant. Salvation from our sins is only found in the covenant of grace, which was ratified in Christ's blood, and received by faith in Him alone. But notice carefully that the Noahic covenant is not altogether separated from and unrelated to our redemption in Christ. It's not altogether separated from our redemption in Christ Jesus. It should be evident to all that without the Noahic covenant, without this covenant of common grace so-called, the Christ would have never come. If God did not spare Noah and his family from the flood, the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15 would have been cut off entirely. The Noahic covenant therefore made room for the outworking of the covenant of redemption, that is to say, of God's plan for the salvation of His people in Christ Jesus. So the two are not entirely unrelated. The, The Noahic covenant made it so that the Christ might still come by preserving the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. Eventually he would come, and he would come specifically through one of Noah's sons, through that lineage, and so the two things are not entirely unrelated. Furthermore, though it was true that Noah was not saved by virtue of that covenant which God established with him, he was saved by believing upon Christ, who was typified before him in that ark which sheltered he and his family from the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the world. Christ was saved, Noah was saved by looking forward to the coming of this Christ, which was pictured or typified before him in the ark that he built. What was God's purpose in having Noah build that ark? One, to save he and his family from the flood, to preserve the animals and to establish a covenant with Noah. Not a covenant that would save from sins, but a covenant which would leave room for the accomplishment of the covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood. Fifthly, and finally, we find a statement regarding Noah's faithfulness. 
In verse 22, we read these simple words, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He was a faithful man. I'll read again Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he did not see them. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He did this. He obeyed out of fear, the fear of God that he had. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, What a beautiful story this is, brothers and sisters. I want to say uh, just a few words by way of conclusion, uh, a few words of application. What can we learn from the world that once was, the increase of corruption upon the earth, the righteousness of Noah and God's making of a covenant with him? What can we learn? Well, many things. I'll mention three. Uh, First, I, I must urge you to place your faith in Christ and to be found in him sheltered by Him from the coming wrath of God. God judged the world once with water. He will come with fire at the end of time. And in that day, all will stand before Him to be judged for all eternity. And to stand alone and in your own sins will mean eternal death. The Scriptures are clear, friends. To stand before God in Christ, though, covered by His blood and clothed in His righteousness will mean salvation. Life everlasting. The ark carried Noah and his family through the waters of the flood, and only Christ is able to carry you through the fiery judgment at the end of time. This you must know for sure. You must be found in Him, therefore. You must enter into His shelter through the door of faith. You must turn from your sins and believe upon Christ. Secondly, if you are in Christ, I ask you again, are you living holy before God? Is your way of life distinguishable from the way of the world? Or have you become just like the world? Can it be said of you what was said of that righteous man Noah, that you are a righteous man or woman in your generation? None is perfect, this I know, but I do pray that you and I together, brothers and sisters, would truly pursue holiness in every realm of our lives. And then thirdly, I would urge you not to lose hope or to despair over the increase of wickedness that we see in the world around us. Isn't it tempting to do this? To look around and to begin to lose hope, to begin to despair, even to begin to fear greatly, to wonder, is God able to preserve us? We should grieve over sin, no doubt, our sins and the sins of others, but we should not despair. God has a way of accomplishing His purposes despite our rebellion. So do not lose hope, therefore, or be overrun with fear, but be faithful instead. Obey God always and trust in Him to the very end of time. Let us bow together for prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is a light to our feet. We thank You for this story, which we believe to be a true story, concerning Your judgment of the world with water in the days of Noah. May we move beyond seeing it as a story that is simply factually true. May we also see all that is pictured within it, our salvation in Christ, the sureness of your coming judgment at the end of time. God, I pray for all who have heard this word today that they would be found in Christ, that they would take refuge in Him, and that through Him they would be delivered from the judgment to come. We pray that your Spirit would make this word effective 
to the salvation of souls. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.